Please bow your heads with me one more time as we ask God's blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess we are powerless to create even one single convert. We cannot breathe life into anyone. Only you can do that by your spirit, speaking your word into the hearts of others for your glory. Lord, speak your word now. Refresh our hearts in your word. Create new life where there is only death. Create repentance where there is only sin. Create faith where there is only unbelief. Create newness of life. Renew those who are flagging and failing. Bear us up. Sustain us. Feed us now on your holy word. Give us a greater appetite for the bread of life. May we eat it. May we be filled. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Christianity's critics often call Christianity a crutch. You've probably heard this. Some people just can't stomach reality without a filter, so the criticism goes. Besides, if the Bible is right about God being creator and good and in control, then something is seriously off when you look at the world. I mean, I know what I see in life, and this is not how it is supposed to be from what I read in the Bible. So they say. But what if the Bible said that before its critics said it? What if God is the one who actually put that absurdity there in life in the first place? What if he's sovereign over everything you see in the world that confuses you and looks absurd to you? What if he did that as a judgment for our absurd sin of trying to know the world and ourselves out from under God's authority. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book from the Old Testament that wrestles with life in a fallen world that's under God's judgment. If you turn to Psalms, you get to Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes wrestles with life in a fallen world. We're going to overview the whole book today in preparation for our series through it in the coming weeks. So we're just going to be rifling through the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be quoting from it periodically. Ecclesiastes is from the word ekklesia, church or gathering. That's a Greek word. It's a Greek title for the Hebrew book. And it's a Greek equivalent of the Hebrew noun kohelet, which is from the Hebrew word kahal, assemble. So the word Kohelet is assembler. So the Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, is a member of the assembly who assembles the observations of wisdom and then preaches it for the assembly. He is the assembler of assembled wisdom 
and he preaches that assembled wisdom for the assembly. He's the ecclesiazer who ecclesiazes for the ecclesia. But if we're going to understand Ecclesiastes, we had better understand the most famous sentence in it first. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, the Kohelet. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Hmm. He uses that word vanity, Hebel in Hebrew, 38 times in 12 chapters. If you don't know what he means by vanity, you are lost in this book because he keeps saying it. So what does it mean? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Is vanity superficial, like the cover of Vanity Fair or Cosmo or Vogue? That kind of vanity? Is it fleeting, short-lived, brief, a puff of air and it's gone vanity? Is it futile in the sense of useless and ineffective, like I clean up the kitchen only to see dishes fill up in it again? It's futile. It's pointless. Is it meaningless or worthless? Like, oh, there's no value in it at all. I would propose to you that it's worse than all that, actually. You know where the first occurrence of this word family is in Scripture, Hebel? It's the name Abel in Genesis 4. Abel's life and Abel's death illustrates Hebel. Abel, you'll remember, offers God the right sacrifice. Cain, his brother, offers the wrong sacrifice. Abel offers a blood sacrifice. Cain offers something from the field, not a blood sacrifice. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. God rejects Cain's sacrifice. Who dies for that? Not Cain. Abel. What? Hebel. Hebel. That is the essence of Hebel. It's not just superficial. That's not superficial at all. That's deeply meaningful. It's not just short-lived. It's been recorded in Scripture. We're remembering it today. And it's not pointless. It's the opposite of pointless. So what is it? It's absurd. It's absurd in a way that kind of makes you... Slump your shoulders. Like, what? It's nonsense. It doesn't add up. It causes disappointment and it tempts you to disillusionment and maybe even despair. Habel, vanity, makes you ask with a bitter pit in your stomach how could that happen in God's world? 
things that are habel in Ecclesiastes are also called a great evil, chapter 2, verse 21, or a grievous evil in chapter 6, verse 2. It's serious. Habel isn't just like, ah, whatever. Habel is like, ah, why that? How can that be? If God is. Well, Kohelet is saying that everything in this sin-bitten world is like that. It's Habel to the nth degree of Habelness. What's more, Kohelet is not trying to prove what the world would be like without God. He's trying to make sense of the world with God. Kohelet is not conducting a secularist experiment. Oh, I'm going to try to make sense of God, uh, make sense of the world without God, without referring to Him at all. That's not what He's doing. He refers to God a lot. He's grappling with how to live with an absurdity that has been hardwired into the world by God Himself. Look there in chapter 1, verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Or chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity! God put the vanity there. And it's confusing. God did that. 7.13 sums it up. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Man, this is a heartbreaking book. This book communicates to you you felt like this, haven't you? You felt like this. I know I have. Why does the world work like this if God is who the Bible says He is? Why is my life turning out like this if God is who He says He is? Why do I look out on the world and why can I observe all this nonsense if God is and I believe God is. I know He is. I believe the Bible. But man, when I look out there, what in the world is going on? Hebel. Hebel. Vanity of vanities. He's not trying to show you how pointless life is if your perspective is limited to under the sun. His perspective is not limited to under the sun. He brings God into everything. We're all under the sun, after all, theist or not, Christian or not. Kohelet, then, is arguing with himself. He's arguing with himself. That's how I want you to think of this book. The back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. There's what he knows from Scripture, and then there's what he sees under the sun. I know I read my Bible. Man, I love the Word of God. I love wisdom. I love Proverbs. Wisdom is good, man. 
But when I look out there, mm, it's messed up. And wisdom doesn't fix it. Not every time. How do you reconcile those two? How do you read Proverbs, believe Proverbs, and look life in the eye? What happens when you see no logical relationship between action and consequence? What happens when there's no harmony between your expectations of life and the results of your life? What happens when things don't work out the way they really ought to work out? I mean, when you look around and what you see with your eyes and feel in your heart is this is not how this should be. And I don't like it. How do you think through that while you are hanging on to a good, sovereign, wise God who rules the universe? How do you stay a Christian and look life straight in the eye? That's Kohelet's conundrum, and he sees it everywhere he looks under the sun. He sees it, first of all, in nature. All these places where he's going to see absurdity are going to be the outline of the sermon. He sees it, first of all, in nature, in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Nature. Hardwired in. I mean, as beautiful as it all is, as close as you might sometimes feel to God when you look at a mountain or a sunset, where's the sun going? It's going down. What's it going to do after it goes down? It's going to come up again. And then it's going to go down. And then it's going to go up and down and 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 up and down. And pretty soon you're like, is that it? It's all you got? It's a treadmill. All of reality looks like it's running in place. It's a traffic circle. There's motion, there's change, but there's no progress, and there doesn't seem to be anywhere to get off. It's the same change repeated constantly. There's a circularity to it. There's an endlessness to it in two senses. It's endless in the sense that it's the same thing over and over and over. It doesn't end. 
And it's endless in the sense that it seems pointless, purposeless. There's no logical end to it. What, what is the sun going up and down? What is that, where's that going? Where's it, where's it going to climax? Where's it going to really end? And like, pow, big finish. No, there's never a big finish. It's not linear. There's no finish line. The same album is set on repeat, and you can't even shuffle the songs, much less switch out the album. And this is nature. I mean, what is this, Groundhog Day? You start to see Bill Murray's blank face, and you hear the Pennsylvania polka coming on the alarm clock at 6.30. Every day, every day, every day. Here comes the sun again. There it goes again. Here it comes again. There it goes again. And the more the seasons change, the more they stay the same. The sea, think about it. All the rivers run to the sea. The sea's never full. You get the idea that if, if, if Kohelet had the imagery, he would have said something like, the sea looks like a running toilet. The water's running down into the basin, and the basin never overflows. What? How's that happening? Where's it going? And that's hardwired into the system. That is life in a fallen world. Nature. Second, wisdom. Wisdom. Now look, I, what I really wanted to do is point you to the gospel in every one of these areas. I just don't have time to do that. I'll do that in the series. We'll, and we'll get to some gospel reflection at the end, but I want you to feel the angst of Kohelet right now, okay? You've got to just stay there for a minute. We all got to stay there together. So the, the futility, the absurdity is hardwired into nature. There's a, there's a contra-environmentalism, contra-idealism about nature here. And then it's hardwired into wisdom as well. It's contrary to devoting your life to philosophy and sophism. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom, 113, all that is done under, the, under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I tried to make sense of life by applying Proverbs, wisdom. I tried listening to Job's friends. I tried to be a man of study, of philosophy, of worldview. And what did I find? I found <laughs> that it's busy work to try to figure life out. And God's the one who assigned it. I tried as hard as I could, as long as I could, to apply wisdom literature to figure out life and to solve problems, but I couldn't straighten anything out, even though I could see how crooked life is. I can see what's crooked. I just can't make it straight. Life is bent, and all the wisdom in the world doesn't straighten it. There's so much missing in life, you can't even count it all, much less make up for it. In a sense, wisdom makes it all the worse in verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, confusion, frustration, mental anguish. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Translation, the more you know, the more confused you are, and the less you kind of wish you knew. Now, it's not that wisdom is worthless. 
It's not worthless. Kohelet himself says in 2.13, I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. He says, I get it. Wisdom is better than foolishness. I'm not throwing away Proverbs. I'm not trying to contradict Proverbs. I love Proverbs. Kohelet doesn't disagree with Proverbs or discard Proverbs, but he's a little disillusioned with it. Because in 2.16, he notices how the wise dies just like the fool. Man, I could apply every single proverb every single time, and I'm going to die nonetheless. So what's the use? There's an absurdity to that, isn't there? You can, be, you can memorize all of Proverbs and you could apply them perfectly every time. And guess what? You're going to end up six feet under just like the fool that has no idea that Proverbs is even in the Bible. If wisdom is so great, why do wise people die just like the fool? So yes, wisdom is good. It's just not a guarantee that you won't suffer or die just like a fool. Proverbs are not promises. Wisdom does not come with a warranty if it doesn't work in your case. You can't take a proverb back and be like, God, this one didn't work. I want my money back. I want my time back. I want that situation back. And the world says, sorry, it's not how it works. That's life in a fallen world. So maybe pleasure is better than wisdom. Pleasure, third point of the sermon. Pleasure. He tries pleasure. And this is contrahedonism. In 2, 1 through 11, he takes, a pleasure, he takes pleasure on a joy ride. He drinks alcohol just enough to be happy but not get drunk. He goes all in for public works. Gardens and parks aplenty for everybody. He goes green, invests in renewables, reduces emissions, maximizes photosynthesis. Then he surrounds himself with servants and multiplies the fruits of his materialism, consumerism, and acquisitiveness. Bring me all your finest meats and cheeses. Bring me everything that I can enjoy. He assembles bands, singers, even gets himself a harem. He tries a little bit of Vegas, just a little. Spare no expense, never say no, up for whatever. Wine, women, and song. Let's try that if wisdom doesn't seem to work. But let me me try it while I keep my sobriety intact. And what's his verdict? 2, 10 to 11. I kept my heart from no pleasure For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for all my toil. Translation, pleasure worked. I got pleasure aplenty. My heart found it. Pleasure was so pleasant and pleasing, so rewarding. Until I stopped to think about it. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So pleasing. So pleasant. And so pointless. So what? He says. So what that I had all that pleasure? What did I really gain from it? Feelings? Things? Stuff to look at? I mean, how was I really any better off? How did I really get ahead? How was I different? I was still me. God was still God. Sun kept going up and down as always. It took all that work, all that planning, all that spending, all that time and trouble for all that pleasure. I mean, it took a lot of work to enjoy myself that much. And don't get me wrong, it was pleasing. I really enjoyed that. But at the end of all that pleasure, what? So what? So I had pleasure. What am I going to do? Do it all over again every day until I die? I'm going to hope that tomorrow is even more pleasurable than yesterday? That's absurd. That's nonsense. You can't live that out. You can't keep on living that out. There's no ultimacy to it, no end to it, no purpose to it. Pleasure doesn't accomplish anything. It's pleasing, and then it goes away. That's absurd. You can't live your life for that. And that's life in a fallen world. So maybe productivity beats pleasure. Fourth, work and wealth. Work and wealth. This is contra capitalism and materialism. Maybe productivity and work and diligence. The Protestant work ethic is the way to contentment. But where is that going? Chapter 2, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Maybe the saddest line in Ecclesiastes. Over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. You keep your nose to the grindstone, work hard, get ahead, devote yourself to doing good and doing well. You build your business, create a private equity fund, you engage in venture capitalism, you save your money, grow your investments, you get an emergency fund, an education fund, a retirement fund, and you leave it all to the kids and grandkids. Legacy. You're loaded, set for life, all because you made a financial plan and you stuck to it. You were Bill Gates, Mark Cuban, Warren Buffett, and Dave Ramsey, all wrapped up in one. You did it. But there's a fly in the ointment. Who are you going to leave it to? And what are they going to do with it? And how do you know? Who knows whether that grandkid you dote on might become a prodigal or whether that charity you researched might go belly up from corruption all the way at the top that you didn't know about. 
And then what? You spend 50 years scratching it out, running the rat race, and for what? For little Aiden to grow up and blow it all on crystal meth and girls? Apologies to anybody who wants to name their kid Aiden, just random. Or maybe even before your little princess gets her grubby little hands on it, you lose it. 513, there's a grievous evil I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Ah, stock market crashed, huh? Now what? Crypto went bad. Now what? You rotated into the wrong sector at the wrong time. Now what? No one knows the future. You have no idea if your investments will pan out. And even if they do, you cannot know if your beneficiaries will really use those investments beneficially. You don't know that. You're assuming that. You're hoping that. The grindstone guarantees nothing. Your own past performance does not guarantee future results for your errors. So what do you have to show for it? I mean, what gain can there be with no guarantee? That fact is not just fleeting or transitory or superficial. It's not just useless or ineffective. It is worse than that. It's absurd. It's an absurdity that you spend your whole life earning and saving with zero guarantee that little precious is going to be able to manage it. That fact of life doesn't add up, does it? There is a corrupt formula in life's spreadsheet. And it throws off everybody's calculations. Efforts and ends do not always correspond. And that's life in a fallen world. But where's the justice in that? Well, speaking of justice, number five. Justice, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. You almost hear him trying out Social justice, idealism, utopianism, moralism. And coming to an end of that too. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. <laughs> behold them. Look at people crying under bad governments. Look at them. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought... The dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. That's how acute the problem of injustice is. You look around and you think, man, if this is the way the world is, if this is the way the world is outside of my own little cocoon-like experience in suburban America, I'm not sure I want to have any children. Or consider the absurdity of 715. In my vain life, I have seen everything. 
There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. So where's the sense in devoting yourself to a righteous life if the wicked guy's going to outlive you? That is messed up. In some sense, Billy Joel was right. Only the good die young. You see that working itself out every once in a while, don't you? More than every once in a while. Read Psalm 73. Or again in chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, there's a vanity, an absurdity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, as if they were doing the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. That's not superficial at all. That's not fleeting. That's not just temporary. That's not even just meaningless or worthless. That's absurdity. That's nonsense. That it happens to the righteous according to the deeds of the wicked as if they were wicked? Come on, man. That's the absurdifying of justice. And you don't have to look very far at all to see that happening. You just open your eyes. There it is. It's life in a fallen world. But maybe I just need more knowledge. Maybe I just need to learn more about the world. That's where he goes next. Number six, knowledge. And this is contra-educationalism. Education isn't going to fix it. Kohelet laments in chapter 3, verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He did that. That's right. His providence is good. I love him. He's good. He knows what he's doing. He's made everything beautiful in its time. I know. I'm not a secularist. I believe in God. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Yeah, he did that too. It's as if God has created and left humanity with just enough of a sense of eternity to know that God is, to know that eternity is, and yet not enough to figure out what God is doing in the world, why he's doing it, and the scheme of all those things. Why do you want to put eternity in my heart and not let me figure you out? God? That starts out feeling like a tease when you're young. But when you get older, it starts to feel a little more like torture. Wait a, wait a minute. This isn't funny anymore. Why can't I figure it out? This started to feel tragic to me. He's left us with the capacity to relate to eternity, but not the capacity to know all that God is doing to bring diamond eternity to a nexus and a climax. I don't get it, God. I still don't get it. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. Listen to 713. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And then 723, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been, 
is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Man, I can't even figure out the meaning of the past, much less the present. So what in the world shot do I have of figuring out my future? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. How does this all relate together? Give me, I want to put together the worldview and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I found something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Trying, really trying. Ecclesiastes 8, 16 and 17, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot figure out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he doesn't know. He doesn't know anything. He cannot find it out. The meaning of life is elusive. I'm like a cat chasing a light. I pounce on it only to see it move. And then I look up and I have this eerie suspicion that the one moving the flashlight is God. I can't figure out the scheme of things. You keep moving it on me. You gave me just enough of eternity, but I can't figure out the scheme Vanity. And God put it there. 11.5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the, woman, in, the, in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You're not going to figure that out. You will sooner understand the knitting of spirit to body in the womb than you will know how God created all things and sustains the meaning of all events and all their relationships to each other. You think you're going to know the meaning of life? You'll figure out the knitting of soul to body before you do that. Our knowledge is severely limited, yet our desire to know feels unlimited, doesn't it? Vanity. Absurdity. There again, you see it. That relationship between our desire to know and our ability to know is not just superficial. It's not just fleeting. It stays. It's, it's tenacious. And it's not worthless. It feels absurd to us. It feels incongruous. It doesn't match up. It doesn't add up. There's something wrong here. What am I missing Expectation does not correspond with reality. It feels illogical. It feels nonsensical to us. We feel a certain ridiculousness about all reality and what we can know about it and do about it compared to what we want to know about it and what we want to do about it. 
And if this is how limited our knowledge is when it comes to the past and the present, then you can forget about the future. And that's where he goes. Seventh, the future. This is why you diversify your assets and investments. In chapter 11, verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Then 11.6, in the morning sow your seed, that evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. You don't know what disaster is going to come. You don't know whether the next tornado might strike right through your home. So diversify your giving. You don't know what prosperity will come, so diversify your work and investments. Both counsels, though, come from the fact and frustration of not being able to tell what the future holds. You don't know. We've already encountered that future and the material on work and beneficiaries and what we might call legacy giving. Who knows whether the son or daughter you dote on is going to manage that trust fund wisely or not. You don't know what the future holds for your kid. That's life in a fallen world. And from considering the future, it's only a short step to considering death itself, which for Kohelet is the great leveler. Eighth and finally, death itself And here we confront what we might call the modern views of nutritionism, dietism, and exorcism. Not exorcism, but the religion of exercise, which I call exorcism. Death. I said in my heart, 317, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. He will judge. See? He's a theist. For there is a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward to the earth. You see the problem? You see what he's wrestling with? This is ultimate stuff here. It's not just the brevity of life. It's not just how superficial the world is. It's not just that it's useless to do anything because we're all going to die. It's the absurdity, the nonsense of thinking that death doesn't even respect the basic distinction between man and beast. If people die like cows, then what advantage was there to even having a rational soul? (laughs) You telling me that I'm going to end up like a cow? That's what I'm telling you. But I'm the one with the rational soul. God put eternity in my heart. He didn't put eternity in a cow's heart. Cow doesn't have a heart into which to put eternity. And you're telling me that I'm going to end up like the cow. How can that be? That seems like total nonsense that people die like pandas and polar bears and parakeets. I'm going back to dust just like a bull moose or a bull weevil, even though I'm the one with a rational soul. With eternity in my heart, yes, 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 that's right. That is life in a fallen world. 
Now, now which worldview is the crutch? Hmm? Council one, here's what the, here's what Kohelet wants you to do. After all this, what do you do with this life like this? What do you do? How do you respond? How do you feel? How do you think? Where do you go in your heart? Kohelet, disciple me. <laughs> I'm ready, man. <laughs> I get it. Absurdity. I'm there. I'm with you. Now what? How do I deal with it? One, enjoy your lot in life. Enjoy your lot in life. He comes back to this time and time and time and time again, not just at the end. At least five times scattered throughout the book, you get the counsel of enjoy life even though you can't figure all of it out. 3.12 to 13 is typical. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Or again in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Enjoy life with a wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Hey, man. Hey. Kohelet says, look at me. Look at me in the eye. You see all this vanity? You see all this absurdity? Don't let it steal your joy. Enjoy life. Enjoy it. You're not going to take the absurdities out of your life. So quit navel-gazing while you're young. Life will continue to trouble your heart. It will. This ain't the last time you're going to feel like this, buddy. This is coming back. But don't let it make you melancholy or cynical or jaded or irritable. <laughs> I'm preaching that to myself, okay? <laughs> I know it's absurd. I know. And don't be cynical about the absurdity. You will still be confused and frustrated by life's absurdities, inequities, disappointments, and evils. Don't let it drive you to seek a different life or a different wife. Because she can't fix it either. You're not going to be able to straighten out what God made crooked in this world or in your world. You're not the exception to that rule. But don't let that paralyze you and make you indifferent towards life. Kohelet is not advising apathy or carelessness or detached resignation from life. He wants us to grab life by the horns. Go after it with all you got. As fallen and absurd as the world still is. Live your life, man. Live. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to where you are going. That's not fatalism. That's not nihilism or hedonism or secularism. That is biblical realism. Get to it. Quit your navel-gazing. Quit your moping. Quit your self-pity. 
This is dealing with the world the way our own sin has tainted it. You know, you want to know why the world is as absurd as it is? It's your fault. <laughs> it's my fault. We'll get that in a minute. It wouldn't be so absurd if sin were not, but sin is. And so there is absurdity. This is the God of the Bible telling you to come to grips with your own humanity, with your own mortality, and with God's sovereignty over the fallenness and crookedness of life, of life in general and of your life in particular. Stop fighting that. Life is crooked. You're right to see it. It's not fair. It's not always even reasonable. Get used to it. And get busy living and loving and laughing before you croak. You are not the one to uncurse the universe, and neither is your wife. She can't fix it either, but she can make your life a whole lot much more enjoyable. I know my wife does. So you be a happy warrior. Be joyful. Stop complaining about the life that God did not give you and rejoice in the life and the wife that he did give you. That's living. Because pretty soon, you're going back to the dust just like the rest of us, and there are no do-overs. You get one shot. Don't spend it moping. Be joyful and be generous. Still, first counsel, enjoy your lot in life. Part of the joy of the lot of life is being generous. Cast your bread on many waters, you'll find it later. Be generous. 11.3, clouds don't become full of water just to stay that way. They become full to empty their rain on the earth and bless it with growth. So in 11.4, don't think you're going to wait to be generous when there is no risk. If you wait for riskless conditions to give, you will never give a penny. So in verse 6, his counsel is, sow your seed liberally. If money is seed, then seed is not for storing. Seed is for sowing, for planting. Work hard. Give big. Enjoy whatever wealth God gives you and be generous with it while you have it because you do not and cannot know what the future holds. But whatever you do with money, don't hoard it. Don't be a timid, ultra-conservative because if you are, the likelihood is that your seed will one day rot in the silo waiting for you to plant it. Don't do that. We are not in control of our money even when we think we're controlling it by hoarding it. So don't just store your seed, sow your seed. Counsel two, fear God and obey scripture. Be reverent multiple times. Chapter three, five, seven, 11, 12. We'll get to those chapters in due time in the series. Kohelet counsels us to fear God even as we experience life's absurdities in a fallen world. It's so important. In fact, it's the closing note of the whole book. 12, 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. As absurd as life is, as little as you can find it out, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Again, that is not the counsel of despair. That's not Nietzsche whispering nihilism in Kohelet's ear. That's biblical eschatology driving biblical ethics. 
all the absurdities in life will not negate the fact that God still is. God is. And He is judge, and He will hold all of us accountable for how we responded to life's absurdities. He is Lord over all of our confusion. When we feel the absurdities of life, we are tempted to dream and talk. Ah, I know how to get rid of that. I know what to do about that. But Kohelet told us in 5.7, when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Ha <laughs> ha! See? You're talking and you're contributing to the vanity. <laughs> you're part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. Every time I talk about my vanity, I contribute to the vanity. But God is the one you must fear. I contribute to the world's absurdity when I open my mouth and complain about my experience of absurdity. So I should stop talking and whining, and I should get back to listening to God's word and obeying it, because everything beyond that is over my head and above my pay grade. And if I'm not careful, I'll end up talking like Job, darkening counsel with words without knowledge. Now, where is the gospel in all this? Where is Christ in Ecclesiastes? I mean, this has been a painful sermon. Painful sermon. I didn't come to church to hear about absurdity. I know. Well, let's go back to Ecclesiastes 1.13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. God gave us an unhappy business. That's in the Bible. Now, why would a good God give us unhappy business, especially when he himself said in Genesis 1.30 that all he created was very good? Unhappy business is not very good. Then in Ecclesiastes 3.20, we discover that all are from the dust and to the dust all return. Ah, that sounds familiar, does it not? Kohelet comes back to that phrase in 12.7. We should remember our Creator before the dust returns to the earth as it was. Why does that sound familiar? It's God's curse on human sin from Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. God said that. And Ecclesiastes is 12 chapters of dealing with it. Kohelet has trouble making sense of the world with God precisely because mankind's first sin was to try to make sense of it himself without God. Say that again. Kohelet has trouble making sense of the world with God precisely because mankind's first sin was to try to make sense of the world without God, out from under God's authority. We said, I want the knowledge of good and evil. I want to experience that without obeying God, without leaving it to Him. I want to take of that tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that God told me not to take, of, take from. He said, leave, leave, not, leave the knowledge of good and evil to me. I said, no, I don't want to leave the knowledge of good and evil to you. I want that to myself, apart from you. 
I want to figure it out on my own without you. That, that absurdity of trying to figure out good and evil out from under God's authority is what plunged the world into the absurdity that Ecclesiastes is observing and lamenting. The punishment fits the crime, does it not? Our sin ruined our senses. We tried to become like God, living forever by knowing good and evil. Now Kohelet is wrestling with the world as our sin and God's curse have altered it and bent it. The punishment for our sin was death. And the punishment for trying to know good and evil apart from God is that the world has now become an enigma to us. We don't get it. Instead of humanity imposing righteous order on the world, the world imposes confusion and absurdity on us. You want to turn the created order upside down by obeying the woman and obeying the serpent in order to disobey God? Then God is going to turn reality upside down on you. And instead of you imposing order on the created reality, the created reality is going to impose disorder on your brain and in your heart. You don't mess with God. We should have known better. So Ecclesiastes is wrestling with how sin has confused our moral and spiritual senses and perceptions. And this is why Barry Webb has said that Habel, vanity, absurdity, is not a brute fact. It's not something which just happens to be there in the world without cause or explanation. It is a judgment. It is a condition imposed on the world and on human beings in particular by God. It is a manifestation of the fall and positively of God's rule as creator and judge, end quote, as Barry Webb. This is clear from Romans 8.20, which we're going to study tonight. For the creation was subjected to futility, absurdity, same Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Hebel in the Old Testament. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as Christians as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Ecclesiastes is humanity groaning under life's absurdities, And it teaches you how to groan like a Christian. God is the one who put the futility, the absurdity, the nonsense there as a punishment for our nonsensical sin and rebellion against him. We thought we would know the world and its moral structure apart from the God who structured it, but God punished the absurdity of our rebellion by throwing a wrench into the works of all creation. And our groaning about the absurdity doesn't end just because we trust in Christ. It is true that those who are called by God, the cross of Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. True. He is 
Jesus Christ is the ultimate enigma of the righteous person suffering unjustly. And he did it for you and me. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You talk about an enigma. He took the punishment of our foolish sin so that we could walk again in the wisdom of God. It is also true that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together, cohere, make sense. Jesus Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, which is why Jesus said of his own first advent in Matthew 12 that something greater than Solomon is here. In fact, God's whole plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. For every instance of absurdity in the universe, Jesus is the answer. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the historical observable evidence that God has judged and will judge sin, even when we see it going unaddressed from our own vantage point. All those things are true. Your hope is in Christ. He is the hope for the hopelessness and absurdity of the world. But none of this means that we are already released from our groaning under that futility in this world. Paul says that the whole creation still groans and we still groan inwardly even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit ourselves. We have to wait for the adoption of our sons, uh, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have the first fruits of the Spirit but not yet the full harvest. We continue to groan along with the rest of the creation The release from futility is not yet. It's a hope that awaits Jesus' return. But it is a hope. It is a hope. It's a hope that Jesus has secured for all those who turn away from their own attempts to understand God's world and live in it without recourse to Jesus and who hope in Christ's person and work to effectively overturn our futility once and for all when he returns. Jesus' resurrection proves he is the judge God has appointed to extinguish the stars, to bring all humanity and that human activity to a grinding halt and bring his people to their eternal home. He will snap the silver cord. He will break the golden bowl. He will shatter the pitcher with his return. His resurrection proves God will make all things right and new. And he calls us now to work for the growth of his church and the recognition of his reign among all men and women And until he returns, he encourages us to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have very often tried to make sense of the absurdities of our own life. We've tried to fix them on our own. We've tried to straighten out what you have made crooked, and there is no way we can do that. Only Jesus can do that. So we pray that as we continue to experience and encounter the nonsense that is in this world because of sin, much of it because of our own sin. We pray, would you you set us straight? Oh God, we are the ones who are bent. We are bent. 
straighten us out. And give us the hope of eternity, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And may we hope in your power to create that new heavens and that new earth for us and to usher us there into your eternal kingdom. For Jesus' sake, amen.